Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, November the 2nd, 2023. One of my favorite recent shows with is with one or was with one of um, the world's leading historians of science Lorraine Daston um, is now based in uh, Berlin she's uh, taught at many universities including Harvard and uh, Chicago she's now at the Max Planck Institute um, in uh, in Berlin and, and I think is considered amongst the most foremost historians of science in the world today. She has a new book out, Rivals, How Scientists Learn to Cooperate. And when I talked to Lorraine, we discussed how scientists might be different from other people in the sense that they have, for better or worse, learned to cooperate with one another and be a little less egotistical than the rest of us, perhaps in an odd way, a little less male. Uh, uh, Lorraine and I also off camera discuss one or two scientists uh, who tend to be male who certainly haven't learned to cooperate. So this is not a general rule, but I thought it was an interesting show and, and an important book. And it came to mind in the context of our discussion today. A book is just out by uh, Columbia University Press. Women in Science Today, Stories and Stretches for Achieving Equity uh, by Lisa M.P. Munoz. Uh, Lisa is joining us from Northern Virginia today. Uh, Lisa, what do you think of, I'm not sure if you've seen Lorraine Daston's new book, Rivals. Is it true that over the last 300 years, scientists have learned to cooperate? And, 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 and what does that say about male and female scientists? Well, thank you. First, for having me on the show, I'm excited to be here. I am not familiar with that work, but I'm going to look it up right after the show. So thank you for that tip off. In terms of cooperation over time, it's a really interesting question. I, I think that scientists by necessity have had to learn to cooperate over time uh, as the world has become more global, more digital, more connected and you have scientists working in different niche fields all over the world, they have to be able to communicate with each other, to talk with each other for progress to really happen. I mean, most of the major breakthroughs in science over the last several decades could only happen from cross collaboration. So I think it's absolutely true that scientists have had to learn how to cooperate on a very large scale. What that means when it comes to individual workplaces, individual labs, I think is gonna vary greatly based on the people within the lab, just like any workplace. You are going to still have some workplaces where maybe people don't cooperate and don't work together as well. I think that we know in general from you know workplace psychology that when you bring together, together diverse groups of people with different backgrounds, with different perspectives, you tend to produce better research. Um, and so the, the research itself becomes more interesting. You're looking at questions from different perspectives. And I think that that all bears relevance when you're thinking about men and women and people of different backgrounds in science. The subtitle of, of your new book, um, Lisa, and you don't need me to tell you this, is Stories and Stretches for Achieving Equity. I'm assuming then in your mind, equity hasn't been achieved. We've done, we've had many shows on female equity in other areas. We did one, for example, with um, 
uh, with a woman called Lena Andrews, actually another DC-based woman who works for the CIA about American women in the American military forces. We did one with Susan McKenty Brady on female equity in uh, in leadership, in corporate leadership, and then with one with Brooke Kroger on uh, female equity when it comes to journalism. She has an interesting new book out, Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism. How unequal in your mind currently is science, and particularly American science, when it comes to women? Well, there is this persistent gender gap that we see in STEM, and there are a couple of different dimensions to it. Uh, I'm glad that you brought up these issues in other fields and other industries. Part of the reason that I think science is really interesting in this respect is because traditionally, science has been thought of, um, in particular in academic settings, as a very hierarchical um, sort of organization where you're often very reliant on a small group of people to get your work done. So you can imagine these very specialized fields. You know, if you are an entomologist, for example, and you're interested in like a rare tropical ant species, there's probably only a handful of people in the world who you can really work with. And so then if you go to work with them, and you find a hostile workplace, a toxic workplace, um, you find unfair practices, it can be really hard to then pivot or shift to find somewhere else to work, which I think distinguishes science a little bit from some other industries where you might have um, bigger, different places that you can go to if you encounter that. So I, I think there, there are a few issues to unpack. You know, One is just looking at the numbers. So if you look at the number of women entering all science fields at the undergraduate level, this is um, recent data from the U.S. National Science Foundation, it's about 50% of people who are entering in at the undergraduate level are women, which is fantastic. And it definitely shows that there's been a lot of progress. Um, but then as you sort of look at the changes from undergraduate to graduate level, from graduate school to PhD to postdoc, and then on through to employment in the sciences, by the time you get down to that bottom area, it's about 30% of people who are women working in the sciences. And so that's really what I'm talking about in my book is what are some of the forces, what are some of the challenges and hurdles that are creating that attrition, which is sometimes called the leaky pipeline in science? And what are some research-based solutions to overcome some of those hurdles at the institutional level? What are sort of the, the outdated systems that need to be fixed? Lisa, some people will be listening or watching to this and thinking, well, if 50% of women uh, go into science or if the undergraduate science uh, community is 50% female and then uh, men dominate at the 70-30 level when, they, when it comes to the profession, to jobs, it may reflect ability. We live in a meritocracy. How would you respond to that? I would show them the data. So that's a large part of my book is showing them the data that shows that this isn't just about merit. Um, I can give you a great example of that from my book. There was a psychologist uh, named Corrine Moss-Rakusen. She worked with colleagues. Um, there was a great paper that came out in 2012 where they um, took a resume, identical resume. Uh, they labeled uh, half of the resumes all the same with a stereotypically common male name say John, and they labeled the other half with a stereotypically common name like Jennifer. And they then sent these to faculty to rate um, how likely they were to hire this person, this hypothetical person into a science graduate school position. And they found that faculty of all genders 
rated the male labeled candidate more likely to be hired, more competent, more likely for them to want to mentor them. And these were by significant margins. Again, these were identical resumes in every respect. And when this paper came out in 2012, it kind of rocked the science world a little bit, right? Because we do think of science as being this objective meritocracy. You work hard and, you know, the best rise to the top. And this sort of exposed this really widespread implicit bias that exists, um, that, that, that scientists are not immune from, just like the rest of us aren't immune from. And they've replicated this study um, many times over, both that group of researchers and others. And they've looked at things like um, intersecting identities. So what happens when you take the same resumes and you label them with different, like stereotypically common uh, names that reflect per perhaps different races. And they, they consistently find these patterns of implicit bias. And so that's, again, kind of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about equity, when I'm talking about fairness, and the fact that, unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect meritocracy. And there's lots of data to support that. Yes, you're absolutely right, Lisa. We don't live in a perfect meritocracy. And if we did, that may not be good either. Um, we are speaking with Lisa M.P. Munoz, the author of Women in Science Now, a, a book about implicit bias and leaky pipelines and all sorts of other things. Lisa, I'm curious, in terms of that research, I, I don't know whether the researchers, did they look at men and women in terms of their own analysis? In other words, uh, I, I take your point that the, the John and the Jennifer were presented identically and people gave the job to John, but was there any breakdown in terms of whether it was a, a male or a female looking at those resumes? There was a breakdown, and I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but I do know that it was uh, both men and women rated the male faculty higher. And so it does show that this implicit bias is not necessarily uh, specific to one gender, that we do still all sort of collectively have these stereotypes that we associate with who is a scientist, who makes for a good scientist, and they affect uh, our hiring decisions, they affect other aspects of the workplace, like people's ability to advance, to succeed, to thrive, um, you know, day-to-day -day interactions. And so a, a key part of getting past that, I mean, there are a lot of specific solutions I talk about in the book, but a key part is just being aware of that and sort of owning the fact that we all have these biases and, and being aware of them when we're making decisions to kind of think about how that might be playing a role in what we're doing. If Lorraine is right, Lorraine Daston, uh, about science and indeed um, it's all about cooperation and the best science and the best scientists is, is or are collaborative and women tend to be more collaborative than men, doesn't it follow that there should be bias towards women, there should be more women in science rather than men or are you in favor of a completely genderless equality when it comes to or gendered equality when it comes to science? Well, well, I think, first of all, it's, it's important when we're talking about science to realize that there are a lot of different fields that comprise science, right? So it isn't just like this one, you know, monolithic kind of thing. And we do find that um, when you when you're thinking about sort of communal goals, um, so there's some th some work about this. How you know women do tend to be attracted to communal goals toward work where they feel like they are going to be part of a team. You do see that in fields of science that emphasize communal goals. So if you're thinking about like life sciences, biologists. Um, they tend to have greater representation of women than say something like computer science 
where, um, you know, even though data science is so huge in today's world and you, you absolutely need cooperation for that, I don't think it's associated yet as widely with these communal goals. And in computer science, women are still vastly underrepresented. I think the latest numbers um, that I'm thinking in my head from 2021 showed that about 18% at the undergraduate level were women, which isn't that different than in 1970 when it was about 14 and a half percent. So I think that that's key. Um, I, I think that we have to recognize that whether it comes to gender, to race, to any identities, every person brings a unique perspective and background. Um, what I really wanna see is just more of um, system-wide equity that allows people to, to succeed and thrive in the areas that they want to pursue without having anything sort of weeding them out or pushing them out or getting in the way um, that might be um, based on a gender bias. We need more liberalism then in science, perhaps. And one publication that celebrates liberty uh, is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics that are supporting this show. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then I want to come back and talk with Lisa Munoz about uh, how we can ensure there are more science, uh, more, not more science in women, more women in science, uh, and perhaps feature a couple of, of scientists, female scientists for whom uh, she was inspired by and might be models for, for young women now studying. So we'll be back in a second. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens, Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Lisa M.P. Munoz, the author of Women in Science Now, uh, Lisa, I know you. You are, in your book, you touch on a couple of particularly inspiring for you, perhaps personally, female scientists that can be a model for uh, young women now studying. Perhaps you might talk a little bit about them. Uh, one sure. in particular, I was intrigued with Crystal, and I hope I pronounce her her last name correctly. Sosi, and another, uh, Dr. Ellen Carano. Maybe you talk about e e each of these in terms of what they can teach us. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. And, and I will mention that they are two of about 12 featured contemporary women in science whose uh, stories I share in part or in all in the book. And I find them all highly inspiring, in part because they, they're doing really interesting research, but they're also really committed to making change, to making uh, the workplace, to making academia better for everyone. And so that includes things like mentorship and teaching. And so I find them all really inspiring. In the case of Dr. Crystal Tsotsi, uh, when I interviewed her, she was a PhD candidate. She is now an assistant professor, as you see, at Arizona State University. She is a geneticist and um, she is a first generation college student and a citizen of the Navajo Nation. And she talks in the book about growing up in West uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and feeling really singled out, feeling tokenized um, throughout high school and college, despite the fact that she was at the top of her class. And well, when sorry, she... yeah, to jump in here, and I know men, sure. men, in, men interrupt and women don't, uh, so I'm going to interrupt you. Tokenized. What does that yeah. mean? Um, where people 
where she felt like sometimes people around her believed that she was only getting the accomplishments that she was getting because she was an indigenous person and not okay. because she earned it. Right. And so this was somebody who is just so sharp, such a hard worker, great student, um, excelled top of the class. And she would still get these sort of backhanded comments from her peers about why she was there, why she was getting this honor, why she was getting accepted into something. And that can really take a, a toll on yeah, and it's unbelievably rude. I mean, even if people yeah. believe it, I mean, it's profoundly yeah. insulting to suggest that you're only doing this, you're only succeeding because you're X or Y, you're white, you're black, you're green, you're Indian. 100%. And that, and and there's just so much research that shows how that affects a person's sense of belonging, um, their sense of purpose, and 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 that's one of those forces that I'm talking about when we talk about these forces that sort of asynchronously affect women, and in particular women of color in science. And so she she went on to college and she pursued um, biology, cancer biology, and she was in her PhD program, and she just started kind of looking around and feeling like. I don't really have any mentors who understand me. I don't have any mentors who understand that ultimately I went into science because I want to give back to my community. I want to give back to, to other indigenous people. I want to help them. And none of her mentors really connected with that communal goal. We were talking about communal goals earlier. And so she left her cancer biology program and entered a different program in genetics where she found um, some, some better mentors that were able to connect with her goals, with her values. And now she is a professor, an assistant professor, and she's this huge advocate for indigenous data sovereignty. So really working with um, communities to, to show them that they can have some agency over their genetic data that they're providing for studies. And what I love so much about her story is that it really mirrors what researchers have found when it comes to mentorship for indigenous people. So there has been actual literature that shows that effective mentors for Native American scientists are those who can connect to these communal goals, who can uh, understand that they want to go back and help their local tribes. And so that's sort of the connection of data and storytelling that I really wanted to capture across my book. I take your point on um on crystal feeling tokenized having written this book and having thought about it and of course look looking at the data very carefully does that make you more for or against affirmative action when it comes to universities and maybe even jobs well, affirmative action isn't something that I directly uh, talk about in my book, um, because again, I'm really looking at what are the factors that affect how um, women feel and can best succeed in the workplace and what are some of the hurdles. And I, and I, again, as I mentioned earlier, I think equity goes to these really universal uh, themes of retention, of fairness. Uh, I think affirmative action is tough for, for, for the reasons that you said. It's it's a tough issue. I wish that we lived in a world where um, it didn't have to exist. But as we discussed earlier, we don't live in a perfect meritocracy. And so I, I, I think that that's why we have had um, those systems in place in order to help level the playing field, to help um, with equity, with retention, with inclusivity within science. Although, given what you said about Crystal, uh, Crystal Soce, uh, ha had there not been affirmative action, no one could accuse her of 
doing anything or being anywhere because of her gender or her race. You know, it's tough, though, because for some of these people, they would only be in those situations, though, if, again, if it's a perfect world where you can always find the best talent. And so sometimes you need systems in place to help find um, to, to help find the best people from different backgrounds. So, again, I think it's a it's an interesting question. And it's one, again, that I didn't really do a lot of research on or discuss in my book. Maybe that will be for your next book. What about Ellen Carano? She for people just. Uh watching, uh, listening, uh, Ellen Carano has, uh, in at least on her faculty picture from the University of Wyoming, uh, has a, a very uh, jaunty cowboy hat on. She looks like a, a cowboy or a cowgirl. Uh, tell me about Ellen Carano and what's so inspiring about her. Yeah, she is, she's not a cowgirl. She is a paleontologist. More specifically, she's a paleobotanist at the University of Wyoming. And um, she talks a lot in the book about how she grew up from a pretty young age knowing, knowing that she wanted to go into paleontology. Uh, she talks about watching documentaries on, um, on TV. She grew up in uh, urban Chicago and she'd go to the Field Museum and she'd watch um, documentaries like National Geographic and she would see paleontologists and she said they were all, quote, white bearded men. And she remembers seeing that and it's sticking with mm. her and, and her thinking, you know what, I'm not a white bearded man, but I'm going to be a paleontologist anyway. And she, you know, was really motivated to pursue that path. Um, she had another um, female friend who she grew up with, who was also really motivated to persist in science, despite the fact that they knew that there would be hurdles. And then as she sort of come up through the ranks in paleontology, she tells some stories in the book about challenges of being a woman out in the field. So you can imagine for these paleontological digs, you're out in remote places. Um, she was often earlier in her career, one of the only women or sometimes the only woman out in the field and dealing with issues of, you know, if you're out for a month at a time, then you're a young woman, you're going to menstruate at some point. How do you deal with that in a way that feels comfortable where you don't feel like an outsider? Um, how how do you sort of socially relate to, to, to the people who are around you? And so she talks a little bit about that and then how it's changed over the years, especially now that she has become a, a full professor. She now leads her own field teams. She has mixed gender teams. She has sometimes had all female teams. And she talks about how sometimes the attitudes are a little bit different that when, you know, there, there are more men around, it tends to be like, hey, let's carry as much as we can to get it all in one trip. And for women, they might say, you know what, let's take a couple of trips and take our time to get everything there. And so more it, collaboration, it was, probably less competitive. Doing yeah, I mean, it was it's a really, yeah, just really interesting to hear her observations as somebody who's out in the field. And again, like all of these women in my book, she is just so motivated, not only by her science, but also to, to make things easier, to make things better for the next generation of women in paleontology. And paleontology is a field that's come a really long way. Um, you know, the, the, if, you, if you go back in time, you know, traditionally, female paleontologists, um, they were married to a man who was the paleontologist who would often get the credit. They would sometimes illustrate um, or have other contributions that were sometimes recognized, sometimes not. And it's just a really fascinating field to see how it's evolved over the years. So um, definitely a lot of progress still, like everything we've been talking about, still some work to go. Yeah, these are the successful ones, the Crystals and the Ellen Caranos. 
of course, for, for, for every one of them, there are girls who haven't made it. One reason, perhaps, because of discrimination, implicit or explicit bias. How many women out there do you think uh, there are, um, Lisa, shall we say, people who aren't scientists who should be scientists? You know, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know that I talked to a lot of them in writing this book. Um, I, I did have um, many people reach out to me who told me stories, in particular go, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, of, of reasons why they decided to leave academia, to leave science. Sometimes that happens very early in the career. Sometimes that happens later in the career once they're starting to think about um, having a family. Um, there, there are a lot of reasons, but again, there are sort of these systematic challenges that have these universal themes that seem to affect women across different points in their career, across different disciplines. Um, and, and there are some um, challenges and failures that I, I feature in the book talking about both uh, broader survey data and also individual women who had struggles. Um, I, I talk a little bit even about you know my own struggles. I started off um, to, right. to be an engineer. And so I think there are a lot of us out there. And I think the more that we tell stories, the more women can sort of find solidarity and hopefully empowerment and knowing that they aren't alone, that the data also supports the fact that this isn't just them, that there are these broader structural issues. Yeah, I'm pleased you brought yourself up. You, it's not as if you failed, of course. You, you, you're you're part of a, a marketing group. You've written this book, which just got published by Columbia University Press. But do you feel, in a sense, personally, a, a, a little bit of a frustrated non-scientist if if you had your life all over again? Not that you're that old. I'm sure you could go back to school if you chose to. But um, if if you had your story all over again, would you? perhaps have done it slightly differently? Might you now be a more formal scientist uh, working at a lab or, or at a university? You know, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I've, I've been working in science communications for about 23 years now. I started off in school with the intention of being an engineer, even though I didn't really know at the time what that was. I do have a degree in engineering, so my formal training is still in engineering and as a scientist. But I had very severe struggles in the first uh, you know, year and a half to two years of my time as an engineering student. And part of that was because I was one of the only women at the time in my program. I didn't find a lot of peer support. I didn't really feel like I belonged. And so I knew fairly quickly that I wasn't going to be an engineer, even if I got an engineering degree. And so I don't know if I had had more support, if that would have changed things or not for me. It's it's hard to not reflect on that and think about it. I love my career, so I have no regrets. And I'm really grateful that I was able to still get my engineering degree, but to pivot to something that made more sense for um, what I wanted to do at the time in science communications in a more integrated interdisciplinary earth science program that was within geological engineering. So I, I oftentimes reflect on that. I'm going to actually be back at my alma mater, Cornell, next week, and I'm going to be talking to different groups of undergraduate students and graduate students. And I'm really curious to hear how things have changed, because I know there have been a lot of changes on college campuses, including Cornell. And I'm curious to hear like how things are going, where we still need to maybe do more work, where we can celebrate. And so that'll be exciting for me to return. The two big movers, of course, of the year, Lisa, uh, were Barbie and Oppenheimer, very different kinds of films. 
one about male science and of course its moral responsibility or irresponsibility in developing the bomb not there were no female scientists i think at los alamos or if they were they weren't represented in the movie uh, the most powerful female figure in the Oppenheimer movie was uh, Oppenheimer's wife. Um, uh, and of course, Barbie, which turns traditional sexual stereotypes upside down. Do you think if there'd been more female scientists when it came to Los Alamos, we might have been a little bit more responsible? And we, Do we need more women now with uh, AI, which some people see as... Uh, equally potentially existential as uh, as the atomic bomb? Well, uh, first, I just want to point out that actually the, the person who really discovered the key to nuclear fission, which was what was necessary in order to have an atomic bomb, was a woman. She was mm. a physicist named Lise Meitner. She was an Austrian physicist. She was the first female full professor at Berlin University in the 1920s. She... Uh, then would still be working in Germany when the Nazis invaded and she was Jewish. She had mm. to flee. She was working with Otto Hahn at the time. They were trying to figure out these, these chemical formulas and what was happening in the lab. Um, she left um, and was able to go, I believe, to Sweden, but I'm not 100% sure. And she continued working on this problem with her nephew. And she was the one who actually figured out that uranium was splitting into barium, which was sort of the key. She corresponded mm. with Otto Hahn. Otto Hahn would get the Nobel Prize for discovering nuclear fission in 1944. She was not included, um, even surprise, though it is surprise. widely widely known that right. she was the one. Yeah, there, there are surprise. letters. Yeah. She was also very public in saying that she did not want her research used in making an atomic bomb. Um, and so when I think about Oppenheimer and that film and sort of the representation, first of all, there were women who contributed. They were not represented. Right. Um, well, but, remember, but, sorry to interrupt again. You remember the little story within the film of there was one talented female or the many talented female scientists, but the one talented female scientist who Oppenheimer wanted to work on his team, he gave her a job as a secretary. Yeah. And, you know, and that's that, that I, I would believe it, you know, and I don't know what the true story was there. But, you know, I, I do think that when you have more diverse teams, you have diverse perspectives, it can change how you're thinking about the ethics of a situation, how you're thinking about your role as a scientist. Uh, you know, it's very easy when it's just one person who's calling the shots and who's a very like powerful figure for everybody to sort of follow the lead. And if you don't have any dissenting voices um, in any you know different kinds of backgrounds, then that's going to fundamentally change the science. And that's why I think that having uh, you know, different people from different backgrounds and different perspectives produces better research, produces perhaps more ethical research, produces perhaps, you know, um, better workplaces where cooperation and collaboration is even easier. And then do we need, finally, finally, uh, Lisa, do we need Mattel to make more Barbie dolls uh, of female scientists? You know, I'll say I was not a Barbie person growing up. I saw the film and I, I loved it. I, I, I saw it with my husband, with my two daughters, and we all 
absolutely loved it. I am a big supporter of more representation of female scientists in any medium, whether it's dolls, whether it's on television, whether it's um, in film. I'd love to see a film about Lise Meitner. I think it would be absolutely fascinating about her life. Um, I think that once we have more films like that about these lost women in science, about people who had these important contributions, it's going to fundamentally change how we think about stereotypes, how we think about who makes for a good scientist, what makes for a good scientist, what makes for an ethical scientist. And so that's part of what drives me in science communications as an author. Why I wrote this book is to sort of elevate more stories so that we're broadening our thinking on what science is and who scientists are.